open your Bibles to Genesis 22. We come to our last sermon this morning, our last lesson on the life of Abraham. Thank you, James, for reading that text that so well encapsulates Abraham's life, a life of faith. Bow with me as I open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come before you and worship you through song and through the preaching of your word. I ask that you would help me to be clear this morning, that we would submit ourselves to your word, trust more in you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be obedient and mature Christians. And for those here that do not know you, we ask that you would open their eyes. May they see themselves dead in their transgressions and place their faith and trust in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as you open your Bibles, if you haven't already, Genesis 22, I want to begin with a, a question. Is there anybody here who enjoys tests? They're like, yeah, my favorite day of school is when I'm tested. Anybody? No? I mean, I thought, yeah, was that a half hand? Okay, so she did one. I figured there would be at least one because there's always that weirdo that's like, yes, I love tests. It's my favorite day. Most of us, we don't enjoy tests. But why is it that we're given tests in school? Is it because our, our teachers want to see us fail? Is it because they like to see us suffer? No, that's not why, right? They, they give us tests so that we can prove that we've learned something that we're growing in wisdom and understanding. And the schools, right, they like to point to charts that say, look, our kids are getting smarter. But you're not only proving to the schools, you're also proving to yourself, yes, look, I've actually learned this material and I can now regurgitate it at the very least. Well, in this text this morning, we're going to see God test Abraham's faith. And he's not testing Abraham's faith because he wants to see Abraham suffer or he wants to see him fail. No, God's testing Abraham's faith to prove that Abraham's faith is genuine and real. So your text this morning, or excuse me, your title this morning is God tests Abraham's faith. God tests Abraham's faith. And we come really to the climax in the Abrahamic narrative, the, the, the climax of his life, if you will. And as we work through this chapter, we'll see six descriptive points that show us that God is testing and proving Abraham's faith to be genuine. Begin reading with me in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. The first outline point this morning is God's secluded test. God's secluded test, which we find in verse 1. Note the narrator's introduction here to the chapter, right? We are in a privileged position. And who's the narrator of the book of Genesis? Who knows? Moses. I heard somebody, right? He wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he's recalling this test that God had for Abraham. But as we just read, this test is not clearly known to Abraham, right? He just gets a command from God. So we need to recognize as we go into this narrative that we hold a privileged position, that Moses is giving us a glimpse, as it were, into the mind of God, kind of a behind-the-scenes look at what's about to take place. It's almost like the book of Job. Remember the first couple chapters in the book of Job, you see the heavenly scene between God and Satan, and Satan is allowed to tempt Job. 
it's kind of the same here. We, as the readers, get an opportunity to see what's going on behind the scenes. And recognize that, that God is, is not testing Abraham's faith because he doesn't know that Abraham is faithful, right? Obviously, he knows. He's omniscient, and he's the one that gave Abraham the faith. We know this from Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So again, why? We need to see this. Why is Abraham being tested by God? It's not that God doesn't know. It's not that God wants him to fail. It's because God is proving Abraham's faith is genuine. He's showing Abraham, he's showing all of Abraham's descendants and all Christians that follow what genuine, mature faith looks like. So that was a quick first point, but we move on to our second point, God's shocking command. God's shocking command in verse 2. Read it again with me. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. Specifically, this verse actually has four commands. Or excuse me, three commands. Take your son, go to the land of Moriah, and then most shockingly, God tells Abraham to offer his son, whom he loves, as a burnt offering. Now perhaps you're wondering, how is this command permissible? How is it that God can command Abraham something to, to do something that obviously God doesn't allow himself, right? Murder or ch child sacrifice. And really, the text really doesn't explain it explicitly, except for the fact that we know as readers that this is a test, right? He's not actually going to ask or allow Abraham to go through with sacrificing Isaac. But he wants Isaac to know that this is, he's asking, or excuse me, he wants Abraham to know that he's asking Abraham for everything, right? Because Isaac is his beloved son. He says it three different ways as, to, as if to uh, uh, bring up emotion or something in Abraham to, to recognize, yeah, I know you love this son. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. He says it four different ways. And give him up to me as an act of worship, right? That's what a burnt offering is. It's an act of worship. You see, it's been said, faith is a free gift, but it will cost you everything. What does that mean? Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. What Jesus is saying here is that once one understands the priceless value of being part of God's family, there's nothing that he or she won't sacrifice to be in that family. Ask yourself, just a, a little bit of application here, is there anything that you're keeping back from God that you're holding on to? And I'm not talking about sin here. I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I'm harboring a sin. If you're, if you're doing that, you need to repent of that sin, turn from it, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something good. Has God given you something good? Maybe it's a relationship, a, a family, a, a job, a car, a, a hobby, something along those lines that you're like, you know what, this is, I just really love this thing, and if I had to give it up, man, it would be really difficult, even if it was God asking me. I would challenge you to, to, to think about that and to 
in your mind, give it up now as, a, as an act of worship, right? Bring it before the Lord. Lord, listen, th- I mean, you have given me this thing, and I love it, and I enjoy it, and that's okay. But if you were to take it from me, that's okay. Help me to find my content and my joy and my love in you and you alone. So that when, if, God comes to you and asks you to give that thing up or maybe takes it from you, right? Two things. You can do so. You've already made up in your mind to die to self because that's really what God is asking Abraham to do here. Die to yourself and give your desires over to me. So I would challenge you to, as we work through this text, cultivate, think about cultivating that self-denying heart. So that as I said, when and if God comes to you to test or prove your faith, you can pass the test. Pick up reading with me in verse 3. We'll read through verse 6. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. In these verses, we see, we come to our third point, Abraham's stark obedience. Abraham's stark obedience. Notice that the text says, Abraham rose early in the morning. His obedience is immediate. God just told him to sacrifice his promised son, the one through whom the descendants would come, you remember? The one that Abraham loved, and Abraham doesn't bat an eye. He gets up early in the morning, and he obeys immediately. And it's not casual obedience, Okay, Lord, I'll get around to it, but, you know, I've got this checklist that I've got to do today, so I'm going to get through this checklist first, and then, and then I'll get around to obeying. No, Abraham drops everything, and he listens to the Lord. Furthermore, Abraham's obedience is not just immediate, but it's precise. The same verbs that God used to command Abraham in verse 2 bear remarkable similarity to the verbs used to describe Abraham's obedience in verses 3 and 6. Look at verse 2 again. God said, take, your, or take now your son. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there. Verse 3, And Abraham took two of his young men with him and, his, and Isaac his son and went to the place of which God had told him. And then in verse 6 again, He took the wood. He put it on Isaac. And again, he took in his hand the knife and the fire. Abraham's obedience is immediate and it's precise. And this is the response of a mature Christian with genuine faith. Wabi reminded us when he taught in Genesis 21 that delayed obe- obedience is what? Disobedience, right? In fact, turn with me back to Genesis 21 and let's look at Abraham's obedience there because there are similarities and differences. We have the same phrase in verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning. His obedience was immediate. And Wabi did good at pointing that out. But as we compare it to the next chapter, we realize that there's some differences. Look at verse 
Let's look at verse, in verse 11, he says that, that, that Abraham is dis- distressed greatly, but we'll back up to verse 10 in chapter 21. Therefore, she, that Sarah, said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Verse 11, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. So Abraham is distressed and he's worried about the potential of the outcome. And now there may be a sense in which you know, God is cleansing Abraham's motives here a little bit, right? Maybe he's still thinking the, 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 the nation's going to be coming through both sons or, or something along those lines. But also second, just practically speaking, I mean, if you're a father and you have to send a, a, a budding young man, a teenager out into the wilderness, I mean, you don't know what could happen to him, right? So there's some fatherly distress and anguish there. And it distressed Abraham enough that in verses 12 and 13, God comes to him and comforts him. He says, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. And then in verse 14, Abraham gets up and obeys the Lord. So he obeys immediately in chapter 21, but not without questioning what's happening. Maybe he didn't vocalize this distress. Maybe it was just internal, but God knew about it nonetheless. And he comes, and we see God's grace, and he comforts Abraham. And he doesn't chastise Abraham. But nevertheless, back in chapter 22, we're talking probably 10, 15, maybe more years later, when God comes to Abraham and commands him to sacrifice his son, a most distressing thing, notice there's no distress. You say, how can that be? How can it be that Sending a son into the wilderness is less distressing than being called to sacrifice your own son. No distress, just obedience from Abraham. And I believe it's because the text records no distress because there really was no distress in Abraham. There was no anguish. And it's not because Abraham had become a a cold and unloving old man over the, the past 15 to maybe 20 years. Rather, Abraham had grown in his trust and faith in the Lord. He had grown in his understanding of the Lord's faithfulness. You see, the more you obey and the more you trust, the easier it gets. God blesses that. Wabi talked about obedience being like a muscle and working out and growing, right? Really, it's, it's, I'm going to tweak that a little bit. It's faith. Faith is the muscle and obedience are the weights, right? And the more you use the weights or let's say running, right, the more you run, the easier it becomes, one or the other. You could use an illustration of, of playing an instrument. The more you practice, the more you get better at that instrument, the easier it becomes. It's the same with Abraham. It's the same with faith and obedience, right? The more you obey, the easier it becomes to trust the Lord. He blesses you when you obey. And rather than focusing here, Abraham, rather than focusing on these insurmountable circumstances, right? I mean, obviously, sacrificing your own son and having an heir come through him, I mean, man doesn't see a way out of this. Abraham doesn't learn to focus on those circumstances. He learned to focus on God, the author and the object of his faith. Look with me at verse 5. Look at his confidence. Abraham said at the end of verse 5 to the young lads, he says, and we will worship and return to you. Both verbs there are plural verbs. We will worship and we will return to you. He knows 
that he will be bringing Isaac back. He doesn't know exactly how. Hebrews, the text that James read, gave us a little bit of insight. He thought maybe, we have divine commentary on that, right, that maybe even God will raise him from the dead. But there's no, there's no raising from the dead before this in Scripture. So he trusted God. Whether or not he tried to figure out it, figure out God's plan, we don't know for sure, but it doesn't really matter because he trusted God's plan. Listen to Paul describe Abraham's faith in Romans 4, 20 and 21. His faith and obedience. Paul says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he, that's Abraham, did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham did not waver in unbelief, meaning he did not doubt, he did not hesitate. One commentator on the book of Romans says, with respect to this promise, Abraham was not staggered by the difficulties or the seeming impossibilities that stood in the way, but he believed the promise of God and trusted that it would be fulfilled. You see, Abraham didn't trust his reasoning He didn't try to figure out the plan in his mind. He simply set that aside and trusted God's faithful character. And his stark, uncompromising obedience proves it. But the narrative goes on and continues to describe Abraham's actions. Read with me from verses 7 to 12. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. In these verses, we have our fourth point, Abraham's sincere faith. Abraham's sincere faith. And then we learn further what Abraham's faith is made of. We see that true faith does not just trust God intellectually, although it does do that, but when faith is genuine, faith also produces good works, good deeds that are in accordance with what God commands. You see, genuine faith produces not just the intent to obey, but it also produces the actions to carry out God's commands. We learn that Abraham's trust and faith is legitimate. He wasn't bluffing when he saddled his donkey and he got the firewood and he got his men together and started traveling. He wasn't hoping that God would call out and say, stop. He was really going to sacrifice Isaac. He really had the knife over him and was about to plunge it into his chest. And it's interesting here in in verse 7, backing up a little bit, Isaac starts to do the math, right? You know, okay, wood knife, fire. Well, hey, dad, where's the offering? Right? Isaac's not dumb. He's done this before. He's part of a a faithful family. He certainly participated in sacrifices and offerings to God. And you think that Abraham's faith might, might waver a little bit, right? I mean, Abraham might 
oh man, my son is figuring this out. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen, son. But his, his faith, it doesn't waver at all. He just points back to God. Verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And Abraham, we've studied his life. He has seen God provide time and time again. Let's just do a, a quick survey. Genesis 12, when Abraham fled to Egypt after God had called him, and there was a famine in the land, he fled to Egypt. And through Pharaoh, God provided what? Many sheep, oxen, donkeys, camels, and female and male slaves. And that was after Abraham had lied about his wife being only his sister. Oh, and God provided protection for Sarah there in Genesis 12. And then in Genesis 13, God provides land for Lot and Abraham when they're running out of space and their flocks are getting so big because of all that God had provided. In Genesis 14, when Lot's taken and there's warring in the land, God provides victory for Abraham and he rescues his nephew, Lot. He also provided blessings on the return after he defeated these kings from the king priest Melchizedek. And then in chapter 15, God provided Abraham with assurance by cutting a covenant with him. You remember in Genesis 15, that was a, an unconditional covenant. It was based upon God's faithfulness alone and not upon Abraham. And then in Genesis 16, when Abraham and Sarah try to take God's plans in their own hands, God provides grace and forgiveness and still gives Abraham a son, Ishmael. And in verse 17, he provides a covenant sign so that Abraham knows that he's God's and that all the people that follow him, his descendants, are Yahweh's. Again and again, we see God provide. And then finally, in Genesis 18, we see God provide the actual promised son, Isaac. Again and again. So Abraham knows that God is a faithful provider. And we see Abraham walking through life growing in his understanding of God's character and growing in faith. And here, as we anticipate God providing the, the sacrifice for Isaac, we see Abraham, well, God really providing uh, uh, an example to his son, Isaac, of what genuine and sincere faith looks like. Just by application, as you grow in your faith and you see God provide in your life and the life of your family, and you choose to obey and follow God's commands, who are you an example to? Maybe siblings, when you choose to obey and submit to God's will, submit to his commandments. Are you an example of faith and obedience to them like Abraham was to Isaac? Or you know, we live in a dead and dying world. So anytime you choose to obey, you're an example to a dead and dying world of what genuine faith looks like. But back to the narrative in Genesis 22. After separating the, the servants and Isaac and Abraham go to the top of the mountain, did you catch what Abraham did? I believe it's in verse 9. Yes, he bound his son Isaac. Now, why would he do this? Why is this detail included? God didn't tell Abraham, bind Isaac before you sacrifice him. Why is it that Abraham does this? There's no record in the sacrifices in Israel's history that they ever bound their sacrifices, so what's going on here? 
Well, I believe it's because Abraham is so dedicated to obeying God and following through with this command that he binds his son. I don't think that Isaac is, is trying to get away, although I'm certain he could. I mean, we're probably, Abraham's pro, or excuse me, Isaac's probably 15 to 18, maybe 20 years old at this point, and Abraham's like 115 or 120. I'm sure that Isaac could have at least outrun Abraham, if not overpowered him as well. So it's not that he's afraid that Isaac is going to run away or something. But I mean, think about it. Even if the most trusted person you, you know asks you to lay on a, on, a, on a pile of wood and then raises a knife over you, I mean, I mean the physical reaction is either going to be you're going to roll out of the way or you're going to put your hands up in your face, right? And Abraham doesn't want any provision for the flesh, either his flesh or Isaac's flesh. He's that dedicated to obeying God. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. And in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, If your right hand or your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it off or take it out, gouge it out, because it's better for you to lose that one member than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What's the principle here? Genuine faith Mature faith goes to great lengths to ensure obedience. Ask yourself, what lengths do you go to in order to ensure your obedience? You know the areas where you're most tempted. What things have you put in place to make sure that those temptations don't rule over you? Go to great lengths to ensure your obedience to God. But that's not all we learn about Abraham's faith here. In this amazing chapter, we also learn that mature faith is a fearful and reverent faith. The angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ here, the second person of the Trinity, he calls out from heaven and he stops Abraham from sacrificing his son. But he gives us the motivation in uh, verse 12, the motivation as to why Abraham didn't stop from sacrificing his son or giving up his son, offering his son. He says, for now I know that you fear God. And two things I I, want to cover here. First, what does it mean to fear God? I think you all are uh, familiar with this, right? It means to revere God. There's a difference between fearing God as your judge when you're an unbeliever and you fear the punishment and fearing him as a believer. You revere him. You honor him. But this honor isn't just paying lip service to God, right? It's not just saying that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that he, you know, deserves all our worship and praise. It's not just lip service. It's more than that, as we see here. That lip worship and praise needs to come from the heart, which will also produce obedience. Your actions need to follow what your words say. Fear of the Lord is always always includes walking in obedience to him. The two are inextricable. They can't be taken apart. You cannot have one without the other. Second, recognize that the angel of the Lord is using man-centered language here. Right? We talked about how God already knows that Abraham's faith, he's going to test it, and he's going to pass the test. Right? God knows this. He's all-knowing. Same here with the angel of the Lord. He knows that Abraham is going to pass the test. He knows that Abraham's faith is genuine. But here he's proving, again, to Abraham and to Isaac and to all their descendants that this is what genuine faith looks like. It includes fearing the Lord. This is what James talks about. When James talks about the the relationship between 
faith and works. Why don't you flip over to the New Testament with me, to James chapter 2. We'll take a look at that text. It has been highly debated. But in James chapter 2, James is talking about the relationship between faith and works. I want to read this text to you, and then we'll go back to Genesis and kind of walk through this. In James chapter 2, verse 21, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you say, but you guys always say that you're justified by faith alone, and there scripture says that we aren't justified by faith, by faith alone. What's going on? What's going on is that true faith is always accompanied by works. True faith will always evidence itself with righteous living and obedience to God just like Abraham's life. And Abraham is provided to us as an example. It's recorded in Scripture as an example so that we don't fool ourselves thinking that we believe and we have faith, but our life is in shambles and we disobey God and we disobey our parents and we still say we're believers in Christ. Right? That's why Abraham's faith is such an example because it was mature and because it manifested fruit and obedience to God. Now, back in Genesis, I, I want to walk through this and show you, right? Because we re remember we talked about Abraham being justified before God in Genesis 15. Well, Genesis 15 takes place 35 to maybe 45 years prior to Genesis 22. In Genesis 15, you can turn there if you want or you can listen. Genesis 15, 5 and 6 and he, God, that's God, took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, was Abraham's justification hanging in the balance until this test, 45 years later? Was, was God concerned that Abraham was going to be justified, and therefore he sent him this test. This is like the final exam for Abraham. No, God wasn't concerned because as we mentioned, gift is a faith. It comes from God. And on that day in Genesis 15, Abraham was truly justified. He was declared righteous before God. But here in Genesis 22, we see the evidence of that true faith being granted to him, that justification, the evidence of that justification. Was Abraham a, a younger, weaker believer? Was his faith not as strong in Genesis 15? Yes, absolutely. You know this to be true. And when you first came to Christ, you didn't understand things, and your faith was shaky. And even as we grow, we still grow in our understanding, and our faith is strengthened. So Genesis, and I want, I want to walk through this a little bit, through the life of Abraham as we some of the things we've already studied to show that how clear this is. In Genesis 15, Abraham's about 80, 85 years old. And in the preceding chapter, in Genesis 16, what happens? Who remembers? Abraham is 
told in 15 that you will, you will have a son and he will, the great nation will come through him. And he's not told that it's going to come through Sarah just yet, but what do Abraham and Sarah do in Genesis 16? They, they okay, well, this is God's plan, but, you know, I, I'm like 85, 90, and you're like 75 and barren, so, I mean, we've got to figure this out. I mean, how, how, this, this promised son better come soon because if he doesn't, this is never going to work out. So, oh, well, Hagar, the maid. Obviously, the, the son, the promised son should come through her, right? This is Abraham and Sarah's reasoning. I mean, she's part of our household, after all. You see, Abraham tried to figure out how God was going to keep his promises instead of just resting in God's promises. But he doesn't do that in chapter 22. In chapter 22, he doesn't try to figure out God's plan. He doesn't try to accomplish God's plan on his behalf. Rather, he just rests in God's promise. He learned those lessons. Trust me, Abraham gets it, right? I mean, he knows that the, the promised son is coming through this heir, or, or the, 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 the nation is coming through this, this heir, Isaac, and he also knows that if I sacrifice this son, I mean, that promised son isn't coming through. I mean, there's no human way out of this, right? Abraham knows those two things. But, and he doesn't know how God is going to work it out, but he continues to trust in God. His mature faith says, I don't need to know. So in Genesis 16, Abraham's immature faith said, I believe God, I believe this promise. And in, in, and in Genesis 15, we learn that's true. He really does believe it, and God declares him righteous. But then in 16, we see his immature, wait, his immature faith waver a little bit, right? And he, he goes to Sarah, and they decide to come up with this plan together, and, well, the promised seed must come through Hagar. And then in Genesis 21, we just looked at it. Immature faith there, although it had grown, Abraham said, I believe God, and I know he's going to work this thing out with Ishmael going out in the wilderness, and I know I don't need to help God figure it out, but I am going to worry about it, and I am going to be distressed about it. In Genesis 22, mature faith does none of those things. It says there's no way that man can get out of this. There's no way that the promised nation can come through my son who I'm about to sacrifice. But I've learned to trust God, to trust his character. I don't need to help him. I don't need to worry. I just need to trust and obey. Do you see Abraham's faith maturing throughout his life? He didn't know exactly what God was doing. He didn't know how he was going to accomplish his plan, but he trusted God. Abraham, or excuse me, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abraham had learned that. Do you find comfort in this? Abraham, the father of our faith, he learned all these lessons and God faithfully brought him through them. Are there times when your faith is weak? Absolutely. Are there times that you look at your situation and you become overwhelmed with the circumstances? Yes, absolutely, we all do. Are you tempted to sin in moments like that? Are you tempted to to, to take matters into your own hands instead of going to the Lord in prayer and trusting in his promises. Be encouraged that obedience and trusting in God's promises are always the right answer, even when you can't see what God is doing or how he's going to work it out. I'll give you a quick illustration here. Just in my own personal life, this 
sermon, the Lord was very kind to me. I was very focused on the circumstances of this sermon with a, with a new child in the home and, and I didn't have all that time and I was trying to, I was focusing way too much on me and the, and the sermon and the material instead of focusing on God. I was focusing on the circumstances instead of focusing on the fact that God is faithful when his word is preached. And it was just, I'm just amazed at God's faithfulness and love. The next point we see is the fifth point this morning, verses 13 and 14, God's substitutionary provision. God's substitutionary provision. Read with me verses 13 and 14. Genesis 22. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now we've already walked through how Abraham repeatedly provided in God's, or excuse me, God had provided in Abraham's life. And this was a near and dear truth to Abraham. So Abraham names this mountain, the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh, as a monument to his family, to the nation that would come through his line, that Yahweh, their God, is a God who provides. And here we see God preserve the life of Isaac and provide a substitutionary sacrifice. This is the first time in Scripture that a substitutionary sacrifice is explicitly mentioned. We know in Genesis 3, right, when Adam and Eve sinned, God clothed them with animal skins, and we had the first implicit sacrifice right? That those animals died in the place of Adam and Eve, but it wasn't as explicit. And Scripture is constantly foreshadowing the sacrifices that will come. And here we have the explicit foreshadowing in verse 14, no, excuse me, in verse 13, where it says that he offered him up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Now, as we read the Old Testament, it's important that we read it within its context, right? We've been reading this story, and what does it mean for the Jews? uh, What is actually happening here in this story? But it's also okay to make connections to other parts of Scripture, right? We've learned that God has provided, tested, and proved Abraham's faith, But this book is also a a literary masterpiece. And when I talk about foreshadowing, I'm talking about, you know, you can connect connect dots, right? You you were probably already thinking as I was reading the passage and as we were working through it, I'm I'm seeing connections here between the, the, the sacrifice of Isaac and the sacrifice of Christ. And we have to be careful, right? You can't just take a grid uh, let me give you an example. Like some people will say in this passage, oh, well, well Abraham is definitely God the Father and, and Isaac is definitely Jesus Christ. But we, we have to be really careful about putting a grid over the, the text and saying that, that that's what it's saying. I mean, it's not saying that, right? But there's foreshadowing, there's connecting. God is showing that there will be a, a, an ultimate substitutionary sacrifice in the future. Let me just walk through a couple of these connections. There's more, and if you study it, you'll see them. But the first one, the land of Moriah in verse 2. When God tells Abraham to go to the land of Moriah, 
Anyone know where the land of Moriah is? You can probably guess now that I'm telling you it's foreshadowing. It's Jerusalem. And specifically, it's where Solomon built the temple. Second Chronicles 3.1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Where was Jesus offered as a sacrifice? Where was Jesus nailed to a cross? Not far from the temple mount. And when Abraham bound Isaac in verse 9, I mentioned we don't have any reference of any sacrifice ever being bound. Why why is that detail included? Well, we talked about it within its context, why it's there, but God is foreshadowing Jesus being bound. Matthew 27, 1 through 2 says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the peoples conferred conferred together against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. And then most explicitly here, the the substitutionary atonement, right? We already talked about it in verse 13, in the place of his son. John MacArthur says at this point, the truth God is demonstrating here is that no man can offer a sacrifice that will atone for his own sins, never mind the sins of others. If we are to be forgiven, our sins must be paid by a perfect substitute. substitute. And we know that that perfect substitute is the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus Christ coming to him for the first time, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, our Heavenly Father is a provider. And he provides the way of salvation through the perfect life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Yahweh didn't just provide on that day, on that mountain, that ram those many years ago, but he also provided his only begotten son, his beloved son, as a substitute, as a payment for your sins. Indeed, Yahweh is a provider. And if you don't know him as the provider of your faith, the provider of your righteousness, and the provider of his son, the substitutionary sacrifice, I urge you to consider those truths, to repent of your sins, and to trust in God for salvation. Our God is a faithful provider, and he provides a way of salvation. Well, we're not done yet. Finally, we have our sixth point this morning, God's steadfast promise, verses 15 through 19. God's steadfast promise. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and I have, or, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Notice that first, the angel of the Lord reiterates Abraham's faithful obedience. Why? Because obedience and faithfulness to God comes with great blessing and great reward. In verse 17, the the angel of the Lord reiterates this promise, right? This is the same promise that Abraham saw and heard from Genesis 12, but he adds something to it. He says, and your seed will possess the gates of their enemies, meaning that you and the nation coming after you will overcome their enemies. This was not 
originally part of the promise in Genesis 12. But why is it added? Verse 18 tells us, because you have obeyed my voice. Don't miss this. The only reason that you can be faithful to God is because he has first been faithful to us, right? John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. But once you're part of his family, once you have submitted your life to him and trusted in him and turned from your sins, you're within his steadfast love. And there is great reward with keeping his commands inside his steadfast love. David says in Psalm 19, speaking of God's commandments, he says in verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. You see, God is faithful to his promises, but there is also great reward in obeying and being faithful to him as one of his covenant children. So in conclusion, we've wrapped up, we've finished our study of the life of Abraham. We've seen God call him out and and bless him greatly, and we've seen God's faithfulness throughout. We've also seen Abraham's faith grow, and we've seen his faith grow because he's learned the character of God, and God faithfully, faithfully brought him through ups and downs and trials and even his own sins. So I've given you a lot of application throughout, but I just want to give you one final application. Go back and read the the narrative of Abraham. It'll take you less than an hour, Genesis 12 to 22, and, and see God's faithfulness and how he grew Abraham's faith. And see in your own life, God's faithfulness in your own life and how he has grown your faith. And when you get to times where your faith is shaky and, and you're not sure what to do, continue trusting and continue obeying. And if you're not in Christ, I'll say it one more time, God is a provider If you have not trusted in him, he provides the only way of salvation. The only way. So turn from your sins and trust him, and he will provide. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so faithful. You are so gracious, and you are so kind. Thank you so much for the study of the life of Abraham and showing us the father of our faith who failed so many times, and yet you were so faithful to him. Thank you for showing us that you are faithful to grow our faith and mature our faith. Help us to grow and mature and be faithful to your commandments. May you give us the grace to obey you more today and this week. And may you be glorified in all that we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.